Welcome to another episode of Empower Apps. I'm your host, Leo Dion. Today, I'm joined by Marcian Krzyzanowski. Did I say it right? Almost. Marcin Krzyzanowski. Thank you for having me today. Krzyzanowski. Uh, I'm so glad to have you on. I've been following you on Twitter and uh, some of your projects on GitHub, and I'm super excited because uh, uh, we've been chatting about Swift packages and crit encryption and server side. So it's really great to have you on. I'll let you start by introducing yourself. Hello, my name is Marcin Krzyzanowski. It's a typical Polish name and hard to pronounce as it should be. I am a software developer. I work mostly on macOS side now. Although I'm doing uh, some different projects as well. I did some open source. You may know me from CryptoSwift or some other projects you can find on my GitHub. The link will be probably posted somewhere here. Yeah, and we'll post those in the show notes. Yeah, and I'm quite active on Twitter. I'm over-posting, over-sharing on Twitter. (laughs) (laughs) Which is the custom on Twitter, I suppose. So one of the projects you mentioned uh, that I've been using quite a bit on some client work and just dabbling into is CryptoSwift, which is really awesome. And uh, folks should definitely check it out. Uh, What exactly is CryptoSwift? Before I answer that, I would like to ask you, why did you use a CryptoSwift for? Ooh, that's a great question. So... I believe the reason I needed to use it was because I was doing server-side Swift stuff and a lot of things like the Enclave capabilities just aren't there. So I had to use CryptoSwift because it works on Linux, whereas the Apple stuff obviously doesn't. Yeah, that's a good start. The CryptoSwift is a Swift-only implementation on some cryptographic uh, algorithms. Uh, Not all of them, just some... uh, Pretty small subset because uh, cryptography is, is a broad topic. And uh, it started a few years ago, like five, six years ago, just right after the Swift was announced. So it was early on and started this project as wrapper around the common crypto and OpenSSL. And then eventually I re-implemented some of the functions uh, in Swift for various reasons. One of the reasons is to have it multi-platform. So you just have a Swift, whatever Swift runs, this library should run. And the other reason was um, the integration with the common crypto was so-so at the beginning, in the early days of Swift, like there was no module and stuff, so it was hard to use. So I could obviously provide something better. Another reason was obviously uh, learning. So I did, I knew very little about how the crypto stuff is implemented. And the best way to learn is to do something, to learn by doing. So I started with uh, with Digest, then I implemented some ciphers, and yeah, it, it, it gets rolling. After some time, as you may know, this project is named CryptoSwift, and Apple released Swift Crypto. I always have to take a pause. <laughs> this is reverse. <laughs> So it's a, it's a bit easier now to gather crypto stuff uh, on Swift, although still CryptoSwift has a lot of uh, users and there are reasons for that because the API is quite flexible and I did implement some of the old ciphers that are still in use and the developers cannot choose 
what they want to implement because the server is the like, leading, has a leading role and decide you have to use this encryption schema and um, it's not up to you to decide what is deprecated or not. The Apple framework is uh, a bit of opinionated in a good way, but it is opinionated, so it may be hard for developers to use that because they don't have a tools basically to talk with the server side. So yeah, it's got quite popular. I don't know, there's like a few thousands clones of the GitHub repository daily, last time I checked. And uh, yeah, it seems people use that still. Hey folks, I wanted to let you know about a sponsor of our show, Revenue Cat. If you're doing anything with in-app purchases or subscriptions, you'll definitely want to check them out. Using Revenue Cat to power your in-app purchase infrastructure solves for edge cases that you don't even know you have. It also protects you from outages your team hasn't even seen yet, and it saves you time on future maintenance and features released by the app stores. Plus, it empowers your product and marketing teams with clean, reliable in-app purchase data so they can make better decisions to grow your app. All that is to say, Revenue Cat handles all the headaches of in-app purchases so you can get back to building your app. I highly recommend you check Revenue Cat out at revenuecat.com. Give it a try and see how it can empower your product and help it continue to grow. Thank you, Revenue Cat, for sponsoring our show. You mentioned some stuff like uh, ciphers and things like that. I'd like to go over some of the terminology that's used in the encryption world. What's the first term that you would suggest a Swift developer learn about when it comes to encryption and what it means? It's a great question because the most common mistake is confusing encryption and encoding. If we don't know, we tend to confuse those terms and use that interchangeably, but that have a very different meaning. So encryption, I'm not a cryptograph, like a cryptologist, but I want to <laughs> say encryption is a creating something that looks random for you, but still has the information in it. So it's conveyed the information, but it's undistinguishable from the noise, from the garbage, from the random letters and numbers. And still can be decrypted, so read by the other part. So encrypted message is sent over the public channel, but still the content of this message is hidden. And there's a math behind that, why it is the message is hidden, how it works. You may heard of some of the ciphers or digests were deprecated over the time because computer got better, or some uh, some researchers found the flaw that was not known before. This evolves and change uh, faster for the last years. So the encryption is just scrambling your data, your message, so it looks random for the third party. So I know the answer, but I'm going to ask the question anyway. How is that different from like base64 encoding something? Yeah, exactly. So base64 is not an encryption, is uh, encoding, basically. Because uh, base64 is enco- encoding, so you encode, is you change the representation of the same data. You do not apply any randomness or something that looks like random. 
You just uh, rewrite it with the different letters. So base64 is encryption, meaning same data, but using different letters. It may look different, but yeah, still use some alphabet, basically. Right, and there's a common formula to translate between the binary data to the letters, whereas with encryption, there's something involved, like you said, randomness, so that way you can unlock, I suppose, or decrypt the information, right? Yeah, the best part about this, that the so-called symmetric uh, ciphers do not use randomness. It just produces data, produce the values that looks like random, but they are not random at all. What is, <laughs> what is a cipher? So the cipher is a formula, it's an algorithm to transform uh, your input, your so-called plain text, which is uh, your, your information, into cipher text, into something that is encrypted. So this is the algorithm. Yeah. Okay. Now you encrypt the data. What are the components besides the data and the cipher that you need in order to encrypt that data? We have, uh, in general, we have two types of uh, ciphers, symmetric and asymmetric. Asymmetric is the ones you may know as uh, RSA, encryption, elliptic curve, encryption, where is a public key and a private key. And I will leave that on the side uh, for a bit. What I implemented in this project is a symmetric encryption, which is like AES, uh, ChaCha, uh, Rabbit. So something that does not involve private public key. The input is a key, like password. But there's a difference between password and a key in practice. Let's say a password may be your last name. And as long as nobody knows your last name, this is a secret. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, better if it is something, something better. But we have another algorithm called the key-derived functions that take a, your password as input and output some hash value calculated on top of your password that looks like a random uh, set of bytes. And um, the cryptographic key value functions has the characteristics of it looks like something that is not made by human, that is really random, there's no pattern as much as possible. So if you use like the library like OpenSSL, it may ask you for password, but internally it may use a key based Calculate on... it and make it more complex, essentially. Yeah. So okay. to decrypt, you also need to like use the same key-derived uh, function to decrypt the data because you, your input is your password. That's the one uh, thing that is um, the input to the cipher. And the other one is uh, so-called initialization vector. This is the only bit that... And that is commonly referred to as IV, right? Yes, IV. I didn't even know what IV stands for. I'm so glad. Like, I was <laughs> like, I, It's like the initial set of data in order to like add a little bit of randomness to it. Is that what IV is? Yeah, a little bit of randomness. This is the only bit that is that is random, although this data is public. The idea behind IV is because we work with the algorithm that with the given input, like the functions with the given input always will give you the same output, right? There's no random. Right. So the the problem with that would be if I collect enough messages encrypted with the same password, 
I will be able eventually guess uh, the message, right? Because I will guess your, your password. The IV is the randomness that it is added on top of that that makes each message different. Even though the message is the same, the password is the same, with the IV, everything will look different. So it's harder to intercept, like automatically to find uh, the pattern in the message. Although IV itself is public, you don't have to store it in any secret uh, place, append that to the encrypted message so, because it is needed to decrypt the message as well. Okay. So what do you think developers should know about encryption and how they should go about it? Uh, you know, if they're like an iOS developer, for instance. You've heard that do not invent your own crypto. <laughs> but it means <laughs> I do that. Yeah, some say I do, but I, 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 not really. So what I provide is implementation. The encryption is a bit more than that. So the encryption is like a schema. The CryptoSwift is low-level uh, library, so it provides you with the cipher, with all the tools you, you may need, but it is up to you to use the right tool and use them securely. And this is part when the do not invent your own crypto uh, kicks in, because the cryptography comes with uh, a lot of known schemas, like... Uh, one of the schema will be you know, encrypt, then calculate uh, MAC, which stands for message authentication code. Yeah, then how to uh, attach this authentication code. And so there are formulas, like algorithms, that will tell you how to do that. Will tell you what block mode to use. Another term you may not be aware of. There are like seven or ten known block modes in which the cipher may work. The simplest one is ACB, electronic book um, mode. The most commonly used is CBC. I don't remember the, the full name. But the most secure is like uh, CF something, CBF, I think. They are different and you don't know that. This is where the cryptographer comes in and will tell you, do not use that, use that, use this. Because if you use the ACB, let's say, this is the easiest, uh, even though you, you still use a good cipher, you use it in the wrong way, so it is easy to crack. So do not come up with uh, your own uh, encryption schema. It's better to find one in a book or something uh, in the paper and use that. So if I was gonna encrypt some data, how should I go about it, I suppose? Like, I'll need the data, obviously, the IV. Uh, I need to pick what? Uh, the, the password, right? So you, you know the pick. password. You should okay. be uh, random. Then you pick the right function. KDF. KDF. Okay. Just so like KDF1, KDF2, and some others. That's key derivation, right? Yeah, key derivation function. Okay. You select uh, KDF. Two. It has two parameters. One is the <laughs> the IV. No, no. It's now it just just generate the key. We will use. Oh, okay. To run. Okay. Uh, three parameters. One is your password. The other one, how long is your key on the output, and 
what digest you want to use, like SHA1, MD5 or something. As we know, MD5 is not good anymore, SHA1 is not good, SHA2 is uh, good enough, right? So, uh, you go those with are that. Like ha- those are like for hashing, right? Yeah, those are hashing. That's questions. why you can still, you'd still use MD5 or SHA, but you'd use it in an insecure way. You don't use it like, you know, checking if a file download yeah. is valid. Okay. Definitely. Okay. Definitely. There are hashing functions that are cryptographic secure and there are hashing functions that are uh, fast. And uh, those fast we use in a lot of places in programming when the cryptography um, characteristic is not required. So we can get the conflicts, we can get the duplicate values. We don't, don't care because we handled it in, this, in some other way. Right. But in the case of encryption, you definitely don't want to use those. No, no. In, in case of decryption, uh, we don't. Right. And okay, so we have a we have a key generated, and now we encrypt. Let's say we use AES, which is the standard uh, cipher. AES. Okay. This cipher is uh, still secure, but we have to choose a length of the key itself because it depends. Like AES one hundred twenty eight is not enough, so we go with the AES uh, two hundred fifty six. So this is the length of your key. You have to use that long uh, key. Then you have IV, initialization vector. And another thing, it is important to use it from good source, good random source. So you pay attention what is your uh, pseudo value generator. Either it is DevU random or some uh, another. Swift comes up with a good uh, set of pseudo random functions already. It appears around, I don't know, Swift 4 or something. And then you can use the same IV throughout your app? Uh, You should or you should not? You should only use one IV for one message. Okay, got it. And then you throw it away and use it for the next message. Yeah. You use a different one for the next message. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah, exactly. So it's unique per, per, per message. Hey folks, I wanted to let you know that today's episode is brought to you by App Figures. Did you know that better ratings have a direct impact on improving your app's visibility and on driving downloads? Stronger ratings signal that an app has happy users. While there are other factors, app stores tend to float these results higher in search results. As more users find your app, they are also far more likely to download it when they see social proof. Learn when to ask for ratings, as well as other tips and best practices by signing up for AppFigures weekly newsletter at appfigures.com slash newsletter. If you like what you see, head to appfigures.com to try AppFigures for free. Listeners of the show can get 30% off for the next three months. That's for both new and existing users using the code EMPOWER3030. Again, if you like what you see, both new and existing users can use our special code EMPOWER3030 to get 30% off for the next three months. If you're an app developer and you want to reach that audience, you'll definitely want to check App Figures out. Thank you, App Figures, for sponsoring this show. And the last part is uh, uh, operation mode. The most common is CBC. You may go with that, but you shouldn't. And you should go with something like CBF, as far as I remember, or OBF. There are stream-based uh, operation modes. <laughs> I'm going too deep now. 
<laughs> that's all right. That's all right. Definitely do not use ACB. ECB, ECB. Do not use it. It's the easiest one. Then <laughs> the last thing is a padding. Some of the modes may ask you for a padding. Padding is a value. No, it's a schema. It's a mm, algorithm. What to do with the last block of encrypted data? Because uh, the ciphers, the algorithm expect that you encrypt in blocks. Block is like 16 bytes. And the padding is uh, if we have a shorter amount of uh, data, we have to extend that to some full block. And there are like a zero padding, which puts a zero everywhere. Some PKE as something five padding, which uh, add a byte that is the length of the missing bytes, something like that. It depends on the schema that you use. There is uh, PCKS5 is like a standard one. Do not use a zero base. Okay. That one is most confusing. And then you start, you start encrypting. So we have, we, you, you encrypt and you send that message. I, I will say, I, let's say I encrypt and I give it to you, this uh, blob of data. How do you decrypt that? Well, you have to know a uh, password. You have to use the derivation function with the same parameters. So you get the key and you have to have a IV, initialization vector. Usually the initialization vector is part of this data I, I gave you. So it's like at the beginning or at the end, whatever, whatever. So you, but you have to know how to get it because you need that to decrypt the data. And that's it. And this is decrypted. And we only covered the... the symmetric uh, or asymmetric? Sy symmetric, yeah. Okay. Asymmetric is different. I will I will try to say shortly. <laughs> so well, okay. Asymmetric... What would be the use case for choosing one or the other? Usually, we use both because symmetric is fast. Like AES is a fast cipher. Asymmetric is slow, so we use both. And how we use that is uh, we get the asymmetric public uh, private key, and we only encrypt a key for the symmetric cipher. With the oh, all right. key. Okay. It's not only slow, it also can only encrypt um, as much data as your private key length is. So, you know, it's uh, unfortunate to use that for longer messages. So, we only encrypt this key, and when we decrypt, we use that with AES, and then we okay. go with the AES. And as far as I know, the TLS works like that, like the HTTPS stuff. So before we get into WWDC, I wanted to just ask, what are some good resources for developers to learn how to do encryption and really get into it? Yeah, so uh, the Apple documentation is uh, quite good. Just recently, they published the document where to store the sensitive informations. Okay. I will find the link. Yeah, and we'll put that in the show notes. Yeah, there are books, of course, you can go with the books. I'm looking on my uh, shelf. No, I don't have it here. Mm, the book is Modern Cryptography. Okay. I can recommend that. Well, if you're really into uh, algorithms, uh, there's a other book, something with cryptography, like the red one. I will find it and put it in the in in notes. But it's a good one. 
Yeah, so books, I guess. And the, and the Apple documentation is quite good about it. You can always check the Stack Overflow, but not Stack Overflow. Stack Overflow, uh, there's a cryptography overflow or something like this. You know, they yeah, have yeah, yeah. So. I know what you're talking about. Okay, cool. Yeah, and then you can find some useful information. So whenever you're not sure what mode you need or whatever, you know, this one of these uh, questions, go there and there will be answer probably. And check out the Crypto Swift readme. Seriously, well done. Yeah, very nice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I wanted to talk to you about WWDC, and specifically, I wanted to talk about what is on your developer wish list for this year, or what would you most like or or want on that wish list. Well, the Swift UI is uh, evolving, and uh, we already on a Swift UI two point zero, so called. It's not version, but. And it's still more refinements. So I guess we will get something more stable, especially on the macOS side, which is uh, lacking. Yeah, it's evolving. So yeah, I, I think we will stabilize. You know, there will be some stable uh, API that we can uh, work on. So that's on the UI side. And on everything else, I'm not really following all the frameworks because it, it's too much to follow. <laughs> I don't know what's going on in a like, uh, R kit. <laughs> so it's funny how like every year we kind of binge watch a few of these videos and then we forget about them six months later. So like, yeah, I kind of hope, I, I, I feel like I need to spend some time maybe watching some of the videos from the last few years um, because there's stuff I still haven't, picked up on like you said ARKit certainly is one that they they push and push because obviously they have some hardware down the line that they want folks to get ready for but but i'm i'm, I'm really looking you know looking forward for the improvements in the xcode itself i'm into the dev tools a bit of so i'm i'm closely looking how it works how it looks and i hope the xcode will get a bit more love we got just last year we've got um when did we got this uh, the previews the Swift UI and the previews was the last year? Uh, two years ago that was when okay. Swift UI came out yeah yeah and it's not very stable till today I work in the project when I'm not able to to render any preview in a reasonable time because there's like a five second limit and even on the M1 chip it still gets a bit longer so yeah it, have it, you it, tried like breaking down your UI into smaller pieces does that help with your live previews I think I do although I don't know what's going on it's a macOS uh, it's a macOS application maybe that's related to macOS more than the iOS I cannot use that feature the debugger still has some uh, problems. So uh, there is room to improvements, and I'm looking forward to address more of that. Also, the Swift Packet Manager, as we know, thankfully something happened. And uh, a year ago or something, it started to speed up. I don't know if you noticed that. Yeah, no, it's a lot better now. I talked about this at Swift Heroes, but for me, like the biggest pain with Swift packages is some of these repos are massive. And it'll take forever for Xcode to check out and fetch. And then once it does that, it's actually not too bad. But it's like some Swift packages just are so big, they take forever for Xcode to download. Yeah, I remember some discussion around that. I don't know if it's already uh, addressed or not. You know, it, what it does is it, uh, it clone the full repo, which it maybe not necessarily because we don't need a full repo. We just need a, one branch most likely. So it probably can be speed up with uh, uh, recent versions of Git. But other things, uh, they just uh, 
in Swift 5.5, there will be uh, this plugins, so-called. I know the implementation is already in the repo. It will be with the Swift 5.5. The plugins is uh, the pieces of uh, scripts that you can run uh, along the build process. So it's awesome, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You mean like like build tools, essentially, right? Yeah. I want to run Linter. I want to run whatever sorcery. Well, I guess sorcery has yeah. its own issues. But you know what I mean, right? So that is that what you're talking about? Yes, yes. And it's awesome. So it's evolving. And I see some uh, good progress. So I hope we won't have to uh, wait next five years to get <laughs> somewhere. Well... One thing I was going to mention, you know, at the time of the recording, we're looking at a release pretty soon of 12.5, but I'm disappointed that there seems to be like some issues with packages in 12.5 um, as far as like testing, I think. And like, that's actually what's pushed me away from trying out 12.5 is the fact that there's issues with Swift packages in, in, in the new version of Xcode coming out today or tomorrow at the time of the recording. Yeah, so there are like a two worlds of a Swift Packet Manager. One is the command line and the other one is Xcode integration. And uh, they not necessarily use everything same, like the same uh, tool, even tools, like a build, build system is different here and there. So Excel integration has some flaws, and there's a reason for that. Uh, obviously, it's hard to get something uh, new, modern, and fit in an old Xcode project model. So that will be obvious. It's, it's like patching, you know, some old code base. It's hard. We we see that uh, it has some sidekicks here and there, unexpected uh, actions that uh, happens after we use the Swift Pack. Although it's getting better, it's really getting better. Yeah, definitely. Hey folks, it's that time again. The best Swift developer event in the known universe begins. At least that's what it says on the website, but it is an awesome event. If you heard John Wilker on our previous podcast episode, you know I'm talking about 360 iDev. This year, they're going to be doing something a little bit different with a hybrid event. You can choose between three different tickets, an in-person attendee, online attendee, and the in-person all-in, which includes a continental breakfast, conference Wi-Fi, amongst other things. 360 iDev is one of the strongest communities out there when it comes to iOS, Mac, and other Swift development platforms. And they've been serving the community for, gosh, 12 years now. They've come a long way. They're not done being awesome and helping the community thrive. And they're going to crush it in 2021, just as they did in 2020. So you'll definitely want to check it out. Joe Chaplinski, who spoke in a previous episode about subcontracting, will also be their keynote speaker. And I know from the Release Notes podcast that he is a solid speaker and he's going to bring a lot to the table. I'm really looking forward to hearing Joe speak. So I highly recommend checking out 360 IDEV this year, August 22nd to 25th in Denver. Or if you need to, they have an online ticket as well if you want to go that route instead. Listeners of the podcast can get 25% off registration by using the promo code EMPOWERAPPS. Again, 360iDev is this year, Denver or online, between August 22nd to 25th, with, I know, a great selection of speakers and a really great way to find others in the community and throughout the world. Get your ticket today and sign up, and I look forward to seeing you there. 
So I wanted to ask you, because one of the big apps that you'd been working on for quite a while is Swift Studio. Uh, how did you come up with that idea? And like, where where is that project at right now? Yeah, I didn't work the whole time. Because if I would, I would finish that already, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, so I started the, the Swift Studio project. A bit of out of frustration how the Swift Packet Manager works. A bit of out of lack of support of Swift on server by the Xcode itself, uh, especially back then. And uh, the original idea was to provide to have an ID that has an editor, a debugger, and a first class uh, Docker integration. So you can develop your project, write it in and run on a, on a Docker and, you know, have it all integrated with the Swift Packet Manager as a base because the, the idea is to have a Swift Packet Manager as a base. And yeah, I got far with that. Although, yeah, I just needed to get some job, <laughs> get some money. So I, yeah, I put it on a pause. And uh, just recently, I decided to uh, back to that project, and I, I'm doing like a rewrite. Also, uh, addressing the old issues that I've got, I learned over the time, and um, yeah, mostly addressing the old issue. One of the issue was the editor that I started with the NS Text View. This the Swift to this Mac application, so I use AppKit. And I thought, okay, I can I can do some replacement for NS Text View, and I will implement the editor by myself. And so I started doing that. And believe me, this is the task by its own. <laughs> okay, okay. Uh, so I'm a bit of deep in that. But once that will be finished, uh, I will move on, because the really the missing part is the debugger integration now, which I was always uh, a bit. I put it on site, and I. I never implement that. I have idea how to do that, but I never, uh, I never did that. So yeah, if I find some time, some more time, I will definitely finish that project. Unless Xcode will, you know, will will take over all the functions. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, we'll see. I like, I love the idea because I'm like a big fan of like Swift Package Manager or even like simplifying the Xcode project schema. I've talked about Twist and Xcode Gen and stuff like that. And so like. I feel like there's a market there for a tool that just kind of simplifies a lot of what Xcode tries to do for users because there's just so much C++ and Objective-C Croft in, in Xcode that it's just not necessary for most most developers. So it's cool. It's a cool project. I'm really glad somebody's somebody's looking into it. <laughs> yeah, I'm not on, on their spare time. Obviously, <laughs> I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if there's a market like you know market to. Uh, have it full time. Although I thought that there is, but now I'm not that sure. The like the competition is strong, but it will be good to have it to release that and see how it goes at least. If not the whole project, there are components that the community may may want to use. Like really, I I wrote the uh, Docker integration, which is uh, quite useful. I have this editor that may be useful for some. Yeah, there's a room to to just do it my way. Not necessarily the Xcode way. Of course, I think about plugins and, and stuff that will open the tool to others, which is the opposite to what Xcode does now. So, yeah, I have some plans. I just need to find more time, I guess. Yeah. Did you want to talk about the online Swift Playground 
or oh yeah we can briefly okay i need to back to that one. Oh, see you know vapor right oh yeah yep okay yeah so uh the online swift playground is open source and i really encourage you to <laughs> check it out and rewrite okay. the code base to vapor because oh, it, okay. <laughs> it was written in kitura oh okay okay I'll I'll send you a bill. I'll rewrite it in Vapor and send you a bill. Sounds good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So what's the idea behind online Swift Playground? Is it so is that project you're still working on or I'm not actively working on that. I have this Vapor uh, rewrite on a branch and if I do that, I will have the opportunity to move it forward cuz it it works on the compiler level and that but the UI part of the website would be would be better, and there are features I could uh, I could provide. The idea is to have like Notepad, something oh, yeah. the coding code part for the Swift, where you open that, you put some code, run, and see what is the output. That's the idea behind it. I know the people use that to learn language as well, the Swift. Language. I know that some uh, teachers uh, use that as a tool to introduce Swift to others because it's av- available to everyone and it's very accessible. Uh, you can uh, do your homework from work. You don't need to, you know, set up anything. It's just a website, so it's it's very cool. And I'm trying to provide up-to-date uh, Swift compiler versions as well, so users can um, can play. Basically, it's for playing with with the Swift. I think it's an awesome idea because, like, you know, I look at the folks in the JavaScript community. They have so many, like, cloud development tools. And it's just cool to see somebody put out something in the Swift world because I've talked about this with other guests. Just, like, needing to own a Mac is a big barrier for a lot of folks to get into Swift development or even an iPad if they want to play around with Playgrounds. So, yeah, it's a cool project that... We'll we'll have a link to that in the show notes. One of the missing uh, things is it's it runs on Linux now, so the Swift is a bit different. Although thanks to Flow Company, which is the Mac hosting company, they sponsor the hosting of the project. I have the bare metal Mac machine, so I can run it on a macOS and use the SDK that is on macOS which may be beneficial for the users. And this is the plan after I move it to Vapor. Awesome. Awesome. That's fantastic. Was there anything else you wanted to mention before we close out? No, not really. No, I'm fine. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. Where can people find you online? You can go to my website, which is swift.best. It's the easiest one. <laughs> uh, there's every everything uh, out there. There's my Twitter handle. Go for Twitter. I'm on Twitter a lot, and you can reach me on Twitter most of the time. And this is the best way to reach me. <laughs> Thank you so much, Marcian, for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. It's good to see you in person and talk to you. Well, not in person, but in person in 2021. But you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah, Thank you for having me. It was blast. I hope uh, you get some information about the encryption and, and stuff and the work I do. And I really encourage all of you to work on the open source projects uh, like mine projects, uh, but also the other community projects. It's very beneficial for everyone. Yeah. And it's beneficial for your career, certainly at the very least. So yeah, that's an awesome thing to, to suggest. <laughs>
Well, folks can find me on Twitter at LeoGDN. My company is Bright Digit. If you can take some time and post a review to Google or Apple Podcasts or Spotify, wherever you're listening to, I'd really appreciate it. Thank you so much for joining me, and I look forward to talking to you in the next episode. Bye. Bye.